Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, hello. Uh, Today, my guest is David Greer, and I think this will be an interesting conversation. David uh, learned about this podcast after listening to an episode that I had done with Dr. Ray Baker some time ago. And uh, he perused the website and thought it was somewhat interesting, I guess. So he, he sent me a, an, uh, an email. And uh, so he's here today as my guest. And I'm actually looking forward to this conversation. We talked just a tad bit about something that David does, which um, is really interesting that he has incorporated with his recovery. And hopefully we'll get to that. But uh, in the meantime, let me say hello to David Greer. David, how are you doing? Welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thanks so much, John. And it's uh, great to be here. And uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. It's one of my favorite things to do. Absolutely. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being here and giving me the opportunity. Uh, doing this over the course of uh, five years, I guess, over over five years now and speaking to so many people, um, I learn more from doing this podcast than probably anything in my recovery. So um, speaking with you is a bonus for me. I'm going to get something out of it. And if somebody that's listening to the podcast gets something out of it, that's even better. So thank you. Um, you know, what What I'd like to do, Dave, is um, generally I like to start. You don't have to go in a lot of de- nitty gritty detail, go as much as you want. But if you could just share a little bit of your recovery journey and then we'll just kind of let a conversation flow from that. If that does that sound all right? It sounds great. All right. So when I take my AA cake, which here in Vancouver, Canada is a, the tradition mm-hmm. of, of most AA groups, um, you know, I just start at the beginning what it was like. You know what happened and what it's like now um so i was born in edmonton canada and i was relinquished for adoption oh, and man. adopted into um, upper middle class very nice family um, my parents um, both uh drank and you know generally were daily drinkers like come home from work have one scotch right and that's it um but definitely saw a model that alcohol was part of our lives and and they certainly would have binges when they had parties and stuff um and uh, and my father had taken over the family business from my my grandfather um you know so he's a high-powered really well-known guy in in edmonton and uh, you know just kind of fast forward in middle school i remember wanting to be so much a part of the crowd that you know i bought a beer a couple beers for a buck each you know, in, in 1970. So it's like kind of 10 bucks each today. Yeah. Uh, right. And, uh, but you know, wasn't, wasn't getting drunk in high school. I was an academic jock. Uh, so a high performing athlete, high performing academic student, um, certainly part of the football team, keg parties got very drunk. Um, but you know, I get drunk at the keg party and right. then, you know, and that's Friday night and Saturday night wouldn't drink and wouldn't drink during the week. So my story is really the progressive nature uh, of the disease. And I ended up moving out to Vancouver and I met my wife at university and, and alcohol was part of our lives. And, you know, I, I don't know the exact moment where I went from a cucumber to a pickle. Uh, but what I share is that when my wife got pregnant with our first child, I promised her that I would not drink because she was committed to not drinking 
with our first child. And that lasted 24 hours. And I don't actually know how I justified or made it okay for me to continue drinking, but somehow I did. And so I know that at that point I was a pickle. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even remember back then how much I was drinking or whether I was a daily drinker because it's just really the, just the progressive nature of the disease. And, uh, uh, you know, our second, two years later, Carolyn's pregnant with our second child. And, uh, I don't even think I even tried to agree. I certainly mm-hmm. didn't stop drinking. Um, by now I'm probably a daily drinker four years later, a third kind of the same. So, you know, at that point, now at that point, I joined a young software company while I was still in university as a 22-year-old, as the first employee after the founders. Mm-hmm. And and I was busy building this business. And about the time our second child was born, I actually bought out one of the founders, mm-hmm. um, which took a lot of money, a lot of stress. I remember coming out of a accountant counting meeting and a, tears were literally streaming down my mm-hmm. eyes, uh, just kind of at the stress and yeah. what seemed like the risk. Um, but I did get the business. So then, then I'm kind of arrived, right. if you'd like. So now now I'm drinking because, you know, I'm a high-powered entrepreneur. I'm drinking to power up to do more stuff. And I'm, you know, certainly some of the time a workaholic. Uh, although I was decent about taking time off. It's a good thing I love sailing because mm. uh, I made sure that I did enough time sailing um, with our kids. And we sailed from the time they were very, very little. And ended up selling out of that business in 2001. And uh, my wife and I did something completely different. We went to the Mediterranean and we commissioned a sailboat and we homeschooled our kids for two years while sailing more than uh, 5,000 miles in the Mediterranean. Oh, that'd be interesting. So, you know, it'd be an interesting story if I stopped drinking, you know, (laughs) shift. But uh, the med's a great place to be an alcoholic, Uh (laughs) you know. uh, and uh, so it continued. But, um, you know, what I like to share is that uh, on our, I guess our second overnight passage. So some the med's a lot bigger place than it looks on a map because in a sailboat, you know, you only travel about six miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So to get very far, you know, you've got to do some long passages. And that includes sometimes going for 24, 36, 48 hours. And our first or second overnight passage, we were in the Western Mediterranean and we were in the middle of the sea 50 or 100 miles from any land and came on watch at 2 a.m. with my son Kevin who at the time was 10 and we stood watches together and I said you look after the left side of the boat I'll look after the right Um, and just keep a lookout his eyesight was better than mine anyways but over above us was the Milky Way and Mm. we kept getting startled because the stars on the horizon were so bright we thought they were the lights of ships oh wow And I, in hindsight, really think that that was a moment that something bigger than me touched me. Like, I really remember that three-hour watch. I remember sharing it with my son. And I remember some of the other experiences of that trip. So while I was still drinking, I think there was something potentially happening. It's it's certainly one of my earliest memories of something, you know, much bigger and it was spectacular. Like, it was just such a spectacular night. I came back from the med. I, turned, I was very unfulfilled career-wise, tried to do a bunch of things. And, you know, the drinking just continued, was daily drinker. Um, 
most of your listeners probably know the story and it just kept progressing at no point you know i was still completely in denial um i tried to quit in 2004 uh, my wife didn't think i was an alcoholic she wasn't all that supportive um and i white knuckled it for eight weeks or ten weeks and then started again i was i don't know two three days so i was right back to where it was and then when i turned 50 uh, in 2007, I hired an amazing coach, uh, Kevin Lawrence. Um, and, you know, I think the universe put Kevin in my path uh, so that I could heal. Um, and we worked together for 18 months and we cleared away all of the other clutter and all the other things until the only thing left was the big elephant in the room, which was my drink. How about that? Amazing. And on January 26, 2009, I sent an email to Kevin the night before our coaching meeting at about 10.30 at night, just after having my last beer. I'm, I'm a very organized guy, so mm-hmm. I organized my last drink. And, uh, and I said, we have to talk about my drinking. And uh, the next day, he was the first person I ever admitted I had a drinking problem to. And he coached me to go to AA. And he got me to commit. That was a Tuesday. So he got me to commit to go to a meeting by Friday. Mm-hmm. And because I'm an all in or all out, you know, kind of high performing, like I'm all in there when I'm in. Mm-hmm. So I had an event downtown that lasted till eight and I looked up online and there, but lo and behold, there was a meeting at eight 30 that would literally be quarter of a block off my drive home. And so I ended up going to that meeting. And uh, it's actually at a legion, which is a legion is for historically it was for the armed services or people that mm-hmm. are retired from the armed services. So it has a bar downstairs. And so I walked into this place in AA meeting and the doors are open and there's like this bar and there's beers on some of the tables. <laughs> and I'm standing there like just like a deer in the headlights. And fortunately, a couple of people that were going to the meeting you know, people in AA have a pretty good sixth sense. Yeah. They just looked at me and they said, hey, um, if you're looking for the meeting, go down the hall and go upstairs. So I did. And that was my first meeting. And, and that's actually been my home group since January. I mean, I didn't make it that night, but a couple of weeks later I did. And that was January 27th, uh, 2009. And that's been my home group ever since. Is there still a bar that you have to walk through? With, <laughs> with uh, you have to walk by. You, unfortunately, you don't have to walk through. Okay. Yes. Now in COVID, of course, it's been closed for the last uh, several months. But uh, we yeah. plan to go back. We plan to go back. So, and, um, and for some of us, like you know, when you hear the music downstairs, you know, someone's put the jukebox on in the middle yeah. of a meeting. It's kind of like, yeah, this kind of seems appropriate that we got an AA meeting above a bar. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, the home group that I went to prior prior to my going there, but I think it was back in the '60s and '70s, they met above a, a jazz bar here in Kansas City, and. Uh, they, they always spoke fondly about their meetings above, above the bar. Like you say, hearing the music and, and all, and all of that, but yeah, it's kind of, kind of, kind of interesting. Um, so you mentioned that you mentioned the coach, was he a life coach? He's a, a business, coach. a business coach. Okay. So this is where now just to, just for the listeners to know, David already clued me in on the fact that he is interested in business coaching and that he incorporates that as part of the recovery. And now it makes sense because it was your business coach who got you into recovery. And in fact, that's why I decided to become a business coach. Was Isn't that- I wanted to, I wanted to give the gift to other entrepreneurs and business owners and CEOs that Kevin had given to me. 
you know, and he gave me a, a lot of gifts beyond recovery. Oh, but, sure. Sure. But, um, that, that was definitely a driving motivation for me to become a business coach was, was what Kevin had given to me over yeah. a very long relationship that we had together. There is a real connection. I, uh, so I work as a manager and uh, I'm a person in recovery and I've recently taken, um, gotten a certification as a, uh, peer support specialist here in Missouri. And I, and I learned a lot about, um, motivating people to reach goals, their recovery mm-hmm. goals. Um, you let the person define what their recovery will be to them. And then you work with them to help them achieve the goals that they want to achieve. And when I was taking this course, I thought to myself, well, this applies to my employees at work. (laughs) 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 You know, this is, you know, you know, recovery is, uh, this is very much like, like, um, what I would do as a manager at work is uh, if you're a good manager is to find out, you know, what motivates your people. So I can understand how, how as a business coach and especially as a person in recovery and with your background that you would want to incorporate the two. Can you tell me a little bit about how that would work, how you would envision that working or how is it working? So, you know, I, I'm still, I only made this commitment about six months ago and I'm still feeling my way forward. Although a new a client I took on last year was drinking for the first three months uh, that we worked together. And then he came out and admitted he had a problem and, um, and so here's, here's how I see it working right now is um, people hire me because I'm a business coach and I have right. a lot of business expertise, right? Um, but drinking clearly gets in the way. Sure. Uh, so like for this individual who's someone actually I've known personally for a long time, I just, I said, if you want me to be like your temporary sponsor and work with you on that, then we need to pause the professional coaching. Mm. And okay. then I'll, because I feel like that's 12-step work and I yeah. shouldn't be charging for it. Right? right. And I said, or, you know, um, I continue, we continue with our relationship as a professional coach. I'll share my experience, strength, and hope. Like it does show up in our coaching calls. Sure. It's just, I try and say, you know, after 10 minutes, it's like, do you want to stay on this path? Or have you got some business issues you want to deal with too? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I insisted that he go out and find a a sponsor to work with Mm -hmm. um, in recovery, which he did find one that worked for him Mm -hmm. and has worked with that person every week for uh, the last year, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of feeling my way. If if it's pure recovery, 12 step work, then you know, again, I don't, I don't see that I can charge for that against yeah. the principles mm-hmm. of AA. Um, but I'm, my goal is always is to help someone, is yeah. to help someone into recovery, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, this for this particular client, this focusing on the the business aspect and where he wants to go professionally, while still understanding his journey and what's been going on for him for the last year mm-hmm. in early recovery has been very, very powerful. I can, I can imagine. I, I, I really, I really like that connection. And I've talked to other people, um, who are recovery coaches, uh, and you know, there, there's no way, there's no way you can talk about recovery without talking about someone's entire life, you know? And I don't, and I don't know if there's any way that you can really help somebody reach their goals in anything. If you don't kind of deal with who they are as a person and what they're going through as an individual, so it makes sense to me. And it's, it's, um, I think it's a valuable service to have someone in recovery who is in this role so that at least you're attuned to it. 
you know, um, you're, you're attuned to, if you're, if you're with somebody say, Oh, you know what? I'm picking up on that. You might have, you might have some, something else you would want to talk about as well. Um, <laughs> right. With or not, or, or, or it's not. like with coach Kevin, like, you know, it took 18 months for us to build a trust relationship till I got to the point where I like just didn't want to deal with it anymore. You know, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. And, and now I had someone in my corner who mm-hmm. I could fully trust you know, and, and know that he's going to do the right thing for me. Yeah. I also knew that when I admitted it to Kevin, because I built a strong enough relationship with him, I knew he'd never, ever, ever let me off the hook. Ah. Like I knew that was, a, that was a one way street. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I knew, you know, if I wanted to keep drinking, he, he, he wouldn't like stand in the way, but he'd keep calling me on it. And if I didn't get towards my goals, like, I knew that that's where he'd go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I sent him that email, I knew that that was like, that was really it. I, did, I didn't know I was going to get to AA. Right. Right. But I, I knew the, the jig was up. Mm-hmm. And, and probably the first time ever that I was not in denial. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that takes, that takes a lot. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's uh, <laughs> and the fact that Kevin was able to engender that relationship with me and get me to that point is just, I think is a remarkable testament to his coaching abilities Yeah, and, and to his abilities as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. That, that really, is, that really is quite a, quite a skill. Um, you know, I'll, there's some, this recovery coaching thing has just kind of taken off, I guess, over the last five, six years. I don't know. I've, I've seen, I've seen it around and, um, I kind of scratched my head wondering what, what are these people doing? But, but there is, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, you could be a person in recovery. I've been in recovery for a long time, but I might not necessarily be very good at, um, helping somebody, you know, identify and reach their recovery goals. There's a, there is, um, there, there's more to it than just, uh, being there yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you, when you have someone that comes to you for coaching, um, what's kind of, what's kind of the first, what do you do? You, you just kind of sit down and get a feel for what they want. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not about me, right? Like coaching is not, there's nothing about me in it uh, other than the skills and, and I got a big toolkit, right? I got a really big toolkit, right? right. Probably a lot of stuff you've never heard of. Right. So, right. So, so I bring that to the table, but Really, the process is talking, seeing if the person is coachable. Yeah. I often do oh. like a free, free one-hour call. Uh, I got to tell you, because a lot of my clients, my clients are all entrepreneurs, business owners, right. CEOs, or super, super high-powered salespeople, or uh-huh. right, uber high performers. So, a lot of those people are not coachable. Really, like they're just. Um, they have problems and they want to get them fixed, but they, you know, they don't want to look at themselves in the mirror. Right. That's funny. So sometimes I'll have an hour like introductory call with someone and I'll just say, Oh, that's very interesting. And uh, you know, maybe they made a commitment to do something and I'll say, and I'll follow up with you to make sure you did ABC. Right. And I just, that's it. Right. And that's the same thing you're going to have with somebody if you're a recovery coach and, and someone comes to you, you, you're going to have some people that they're really not ready. They're not interested in recovery. Uh, yeah. they, they told me that uh, during our um, the, the training that, that I went on is, you know, if, if, you know, you can't set the goal for these people. So if, you know, if their goal isn't, isn't abstinence, then, you know, they're not they're, That's not you have to meet them where they are, you know, yeah. and you can only help them get to where they want to go. 
uh, and, you know, it, whether that be in recovery or, or, or anything else in life. And then, you know, after, so assuming that I think our personalities get along and our energy levels, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, you know, oftentimes say at the end of that in- introductory call, I think we could work well together. What do you think? Oh, again, like, yes. you know, it's, it's, you got to co-create this, right. This relationship is my belief. Right. Um, and then the process looks just like what you described. So I send them an intake form. So I get some information, their spouse and their kids. So if they start talking about them, I know who they are and yeah. roughly how old they are. Um, Cause you know, it, it will come up in conversation. It, it's interesting. Most business people say uh, we're only going to talk about business. Right. <laughs> and I say, yep. I say, we're only going to talk about the things that you want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, so, then, and then, then of course, you know, sometime within three months, we'll be talking about some other aspect of their life. But, um, but, you know, I understand they, you know, to begin with, they have trepidation about opening up uh, yeah. about that. that. That's building trust too. Um, but then I, I asked them to write down like um, six, 12 and 18 months goals. Mm-hmm. And, um, if they can, I ask them to consider three areas of their life. So their career slash business, mm-hmm. um, their self, like, so what's, what is one goal you want to do for six months is just for you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, whatever that, that looks like, uh, you know, I've had people say, well, I've always wanted to go to the masters. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, When's the masters? Like, is that in six, 12 or 18 months? Mm-hmm. And and that's just for you, right? It's like, I'm not going with your spouse, not just something you really want to do for yourself. And then, you know, what is, what do you, what's a goal for your life where I, which I mean by your significant others, your relationships, like the other aspect that's not business and not just yourself. And my experience with high, high, high performing people is they usually, we often, very, very often squeeze ourselves out of the middle. We're super passionate about our business, our yeah. career, what it is we work on. We're super passionate about our families, about the relationships that we have. And we just, we just get so intense on those two sides that we literally don't put enough time and energy into making sure that we replenish ourselves. And we do those things that really sustain us. So um, this is so, really interesting that, because I, that's what I asked. Not, not, <laughs> sometimes people just will give me one goal for six months and one for 12 and one for 18. Like, and again, there's no right or wrong. Sometimes right. we have to have another call where I help them a little bit. Oh, I have no idea what my goals are. Right. And so I just, again, try and be curious, ask a few things. Well, what about this for your business? What about that for your life? And just get them to nudge a little bit and then write something down. So recently I've had people like you come around in my life that are kind of um, putting some ideas in my head. So um, uh, I've been going through some stuff where with this podcast, the podcast has gotten really popular. Um, I've been having a lot of guests and I let them schedule their time at their convenience. And uh, next thing I know, I have more guests than podcasts I can actually publish. I have more going on and the stress that comes from that makes me feel overwhelmed. So I was talking actually to a therapist about this problem and she suggested the very thing that you do. She says, look at your day. You know, you've got 24 hours in a day. You yeah. have to work eight hours. You have to sleep eight hours. You know, if you want to, so that gives you another eight hours left. And then you have to divide that, that time up. And you have to think about 
you know, your own personal wellness, you know, you need to think about, you know, you need to budget some time for your family, you need to budget some time for exercise, you need to budget your time for, and then what's left over, you can commit to um, your passion and your projects. And it's just, and she's told me the same thing that you just mentioned, that people who are really passionate about something, they take that, 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 that eight hours where they're not sleeping or working and they, and they, they act like it's, they act like it's, um, there to give out to everybody, you know, that it, mm-hmm. like it's an unlimited amount of unlimited resource and it's really limited and they kind of leave out a lot of other parts. Yeah. And because we love helping other people, cause I'm sure you love the impact you make oh. with your podcast yeah. I mean, and, and how fantastic, like, it's not that they're bad. No. Nah per se. Like, again, I don't, I don't judge these things. Right. It's just, if you are so depleted, you, you can't do anything in life, which is where you eventually end up. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, if you do this long enough, uh, so you have to bring conscious choice. You know, I, I guess the number one thing I ask of clients is that you bring conscious choice. Like it doesn't really matter to me what you choose as long as you thought about it. And then you, you made a choice. It's okay. the unconscious, the, oh, uh, I just, right? Yeah. Like anyone can schedule my time and there'll be more podcasts and right. boom, right? Right. <laughs> like, right? Um, which when you started was probably a conscious choice and it made a lot of sense to you, but you need to make a different conscious choice where stage status where you are now because you're in a different place and the same thing with our recovery we have to make a we have to make you know in step three in aa which i see as a decision it's really a thoughtful it's a really it's a thoughtful it's a commitment is what it is and it's one that's well thought out based upon what we've learned from that moment when we said we can't handle this by ourselves and we have hope that there's there's some that we have hope for ourselves, then it comes time to make a decision and a commitment. And I kind of see that as what you're talking about, where it's like, um, you're not just like back, you're not, you're not just saying, you're not just reacting like, you know, I got a DWI and that's it. I'm done, you know, and I, I've done that too many times. I'm, I'm not really making a conscious, you know, um, mm-hmm. decision. Um, there's a big, there's a difference. And I don't know, you know, you know, if you can even manufacture that or not uh, for somebody in recovery. Um, so I guess, so, so my experience in coaching, uh, in general is it's asking someone to slow down. Mm. So, so one of my kind of taglines is slow down to speed up, uh, which is, I use in a business context to say, you really need to do strategic planning by getting out of the office. And I, and I have a structure and a suggestion for how often that is, which is usually way more than most entrepreneurs think they should, mm. but I've seen it over and over again, what a difference it makes is this, you need to pull back, slow down, look at the bigger picture. Then you can accelerate back into what you, what you want. Um, to me, step three is a slowdown. Like you need to slow yourself down to really say and make that decision. That's a good way of looking at it. I never really thought about it that way, but it is because you're kind of um, you know, first of all, you're kind of alcohol itself kind of slaps you in the face and your life is usually kind of a mess. And so, yeah, you are kind of slowing down, aren't you? You're, that's a time where of almost reflection. It's like, wow, some, I've, something has to give here. Well, and 
so I can just go back to we kind of we we talked about what it was like for me, but then what happened was you know I started going to AA meetings, right? I talked about what happened and then what it's like, you know, in that early recovery, just going and sitting in an AA meeting for sixty minutes like that that is slowing down. It is, isn't it? Right, like it's you got to put your butt in a chair and you just got to pay attention. You listen, and you listen. You don't talk, right? Like, right. Yeah. A lot of coaching around that as well. Like maybe you want to try listening some more. And that's, uh, that's and, really helpful. And, and, I, and I didn't realize at the time that, see, there was something good about going to those AA meetings that I found really, really helpful because I, I had, here was my thing. I had all these problems that I created for my drinking and that could have landed me in jail. I didn't have a place to live and all this kind of stuff. And all I could think about was getting out of these problems and worrying about these problems. And the more I worried and thought about these problems, the more I just wanted to drink so I didn't have to even think about this kind of crap. But when I was at an AA meeting, I I never thought about that stuff. I never thought about those other things. And I think that's why early on, like my first 30, 60 days or so, I went to a lot of AA meetings because that was my way, I guess, of kind of slowing down, stepping back, listening. Mm -hmm letting the garbage kind of, you know, not, not infiltrate mine. I would have drank if it wasn't for AA because I just needed to turn my mind off. Yes. Yes. And, and just to see a different way of living. Um, the other thing that was really massively impactful for me was about my second or third week of sobriety. I heard about a private man's step group Ah. and, um, I went there and, you know, we, the way that particular group, we read uh, one of the chapters from the 12 steps and 12 traditions, Okay. Uh, either step or tradition, and we just kind of work through it in order. Um, and then uh, every single person in the room shares. And every meeting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there's a lot of people, then everybody learns to adjust their share to be shorter. And, you know, the kind of format is share on something that came up during the reading mm-hmm. related to whatever was in the reading and then, you know, share on what's happening in your life. And again, to hold space, uh, for a group of men and be perfectly silent and, you know, just go around the room was a very powerful model for me to experience. Mm -hmm. And then this particular group of men were very, um, really share emotionally. And again, to witness that, uh, was, really, really impactful to me. Uh, I remember the first time that someone shared and cried and I was so uncomfortable. I, you know, I so wanted to go over to that person and say, it's okay. And, you know, kind of parent them or whatever it was like, it wasn't their discomfort. It was my discomfort yeah. with another person crying and my discomfort was crying myself. It mm-hmm. turns out. Mm-hmm. But again, I got to watch, like, I don't know how many, there's probably 15 people at that meeting mm-hmm. and 14 of them just sat there and didn't say a word, didn't just, just honored the experience that that individual was having. And that particular meeting has been such a gift to me um, to just see that over and over. And in fact, the same group I, I still meet with, I, you know, 12 and a half years later, I'm, I, I still meet with them. I mean, some of the men have come mm-hmm. and gone and right, like, like all, but there's a core group that, um, that they were there the first night I went in. 
I always thought that was one of the greatest strengths of AA is that um, the fact that um, you're listened to, that nobody is there to fix you. No one's going to stop and interrupt you or, you know, usually they shouldn't anyway. You get to be listened to. And there's a lot of value in that, you know, because by talking, I can, you know, I get, I, I, I see people's faces in the room and I feel like people care about me. They're in my corner. I feel safe. And I'm kind of talking through stuff, you know, and it quite, was quite helpful. It's different than like going to like a group therapy thing where, you know, there's a doctor who's actually going to guide me through it. And that's good too, but I think there's mm-hmm. a there's a tremendous value in that listening, and and not just for the person, but like you mentioned for yourself, because you're uncomfortable. The guy's crying, and you think you need to go over there and fix that. You need to go over there and do something for this guy, right? Yeah. But the thing to do is just to be there, just to sit there, you know. And uh, I had the same experience. I went to a men's group for like 25 years, uh, all all men's group, and uh, they. It was, it was an interesting group. We had meetings like what you described where we would read the 12 and 12. Um, we had a lot of those meetings. We'd read the 12 and 12 and go around and discuss them. Uh, and that that was a good that was good experience for me in some ways because I grew up in a I grew up in a military family with a father who was very authoritarian and um, I grew up in that in that era where you know men behaved in a certain way and um, and you know, getting into AA at the time of my life, um, I was just like, I was just like raw, I guess my emotion, emotionally, I was just kind of just beaten down. And it was important for me, I guess, or helpful for me to be around other men who had some compassion and understanding and could speak about their own pain and not just order me to um, be something different, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> or, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking like that. You shouldn't be expressing that emotion or whatever, you know, which is how I grew up. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had, I've eventually learned in recovery and some therapy work and some other 12 step group work that, you know, I had a narcissist father and, um, you know, one of the things that wasn't allowed was negative emotions. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and, uh, and so it's not surprising that it, that it was modeled and, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, roughly nine or nine or 10 years into sobriety after firmly having kept the door locked on my birth family. So I mentioned I was adopted. Yes. At birth. Yes. Um, I had done enough healing in, in AA and through all of this work that I decided to go find my birth families, um, which I did. So I found my birth mother and my uh, birth father and um, my birth father uh, or my birth mother doesn't want to have anything to do with me, but thankfully both of her daughters, my sisters um, do. And I've I've built great friendships with them. And uh, through them, I've learned that, uh, you know, my birth mother was an alcoholic and uh, that, um, the, our brother, so between them, my two sisters was was uh, a brother, and he died in 2015 of liver disease as a, as a direct result of his alcoholism. So, you know, I've I've now seen a path from potentially, you know, a genetically related. Um, certainly, you know, it wasn't that common in my adoptive family, but uh, but in my birth family, and my birth father wonders if his father wasn't maybe. Um, he, he moved out when he was 18, so he wasn't 
around the house, but he thinks certainly later on his father might have been an alcoholic and his sister is an alcoholic who's in recovery. Mm-hmm. So it looks like I may have got it from from uh, both sides. But that, that's been another really interesting part of my healing and journey, which uh, there's no way I could have got there without sobriety and without the AA and with all, without all of these experiences of these meetings and of this sharing and hearing, hearing other people go find their birth families. Yeah. You know, you know I have a friend um, who, I, who I've had on this podcast, uh, David Bull, David B. Bull. And he has written a book called Parallel Universes, which is all about his experience as an adoptee. And the first time I ever heard the term re- being le- relinquished was from him. Mm-hmm. You know, he always, he referred to it as that. And uh, I've had a couple of conversations with him about what he's learned about adoptees and the high rate of um, addiction problems in, in mm-hmm. adoptees. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was really, really interesting to learn uh, from him. And he did the same thing as you. Is he, he did go out and seek, his, um, seek out his birth family as well. Um, he had, what the, the thing I remember about him the most is he had a he had a great experience with his adopted family. They were very loving. Uh, he had a good home and everything, and they they went out of their way to let him know how special he was for having been adopted. Okay, that we chose you. You're special. Well, when he was like five years old, he was walking home with his friends from school, and he told them that he was adopted, and they looked at him as if there was something wrong with him. And he didn't understand because he was always told it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then from that point forward, he couldn't ever trust what his parents were telling him. Oh, and wow. yeah, I, I found that really, really interesting that, 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 that one event, you know, from that changed his, the way he thought about his adoption and just about his whole world. It was like, if I could be and at a young age, if I could be deluded about this thing, what else is there? Yeah. So my experience, I mean, I, Mom and dad are mom and dad. I mean, yeah. my father's passed away. Um, still love me. My mom's 93. Um, got COVID last year and survived it. Oh, wow. Um, I know. Amazing. Um, but what really came up for me was really the codependency. I was too nervous about my mother being disappointed in me or um, whatever her story was around my going and finding my birth parents. Mm-hmm. And at times she's supportive and at times she doesn't really want to hear about it. Right. So, you know, and my mom's someone who I've basically been able to share almost anything with. Um, so that's sometimes hard, but that's also, you know, my growth is that's her issue and she's not comfortable with it. I don't need to push it on her. Right. Um, right. And I get, and I have so many other people in my corner now that can support me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that I, right. I can get lots of support. Um, in fact, I, I participate in a once a month, it's called the forget me not society. It's just a group support of uh, birth moms oh. um, and adoptees. Interesting. I, I, I shouldn't say birth moms, any birth, birth right. dads would be equally welcome. They okay. just don't come. Adoptive parents would be equally welcome. Again, they just generally don't come. And, Again, it's just, it's kind of like AA. It's just, we share every month and we share about what's going on for us, where we are in our journey, what kind of has happened, whether we've been disappointed or connected or, um, and for me also hearing the, the experiences of the birth moms from their point of view was, is being very powerful. It's and easy. Like to, it's to easier now, isn't it? To find, it's easier now for an adoptee to find their, um, their birth parents than it was in the past, isn't it? Yes. Generally yeah. it is. Yes. Yeah. 
It used to be so, that it used to be that they just would never show. They wouldn't. They would never disclose right. to a, a person. But now they do, and uh, a lot through a lot of DNA testing and whatever. But so, yeah. So that, that's another. Yeah. So I got it because the the adoption records were opened by Alberta, where I was born in two thousand four. So when I applied in 20, 2016 or seventeen, I was given my file. But my birth mother had put a veto on sharing any of her personal information, so okay. it was all redacted. Oh, okay. But there were enough clues, and you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm very tenacious. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I was able to, and with some help, I actually hired some uh, a person in Edmonton who's helped thirty five hundred birth parents and adoptees yeah. connect over the last. 40 years. And so, he, you know, he just looks at my birth record and says, Oh, that's Dr. So-and-so. And he worked with this home. Prime right now. <laughs> like just, you know, so you think there's no information there, but it turns out for someone who really knows there is, there's clues. And yeah, and we together, we were able to sleuth it. And then I hired researchers at the Calgary public library and they found the record of looking for my grandfather because he was anesthetist mm-hmm. in Calgary. Um, and there weren't that many anesthetists in 1957. Um, and so they were able to find out who my birth father was. Oh. So, um, and imagine that like, uh, you know, me asking for help. That's also a pretty right. radical, that's a pretty radical thought. Oh <laughs> and boy. Even more radical action. And still to this day, it can be difficult for me, but when you do, boy, it sure does. It sure does make a difference. Well, I think it's it really, I, I really find this interesting, you know, and I have, I've been thinking about this whole thing about coaching, uh, business and recovery and how the two kind of go together um, for a while now. And so it's really, it's, 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 it's fortuitous that I've had this opportunity to talk to you about this very topic, about the two, how, how the two are intertwined. And, you know, even when they wrote the big book, they, they came up with that chapter um, to the employers, you know, it was written by Hank Parkhurst. And, you know, even then it was kind of talking about how, you know, our, our work life, you know, is, an, is another part of our lives. And, you know, in that particular chapter there, he was just try, trying to tell employers, don't fire these guys because they're drunks, you know, give, give them a chance. They might just be really great, great workers later on, you know. Right. Um, and <laughs> yes, and don't judge them too harshly. Right. Which, which and that's not changed. Like I've done probably mm. 30 or 40 interviews and it's still it's still amazing how much, uh, you know, it's a moral issue rather than a mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. There's, we still have a ways to go to break down that stigma. We do. We We really do. And it, and exists more with alcohol than it does with anything else. And, and I guess it's because, um, you know, we, it's alcohol is so much a part of our culture where you, you know, people drink it in movies. It's just like, you know, people seem to be okay drinking it without a problem when in fact it's a very um, addictive substance and it's, it's not really good for human beings to ingest anyway. Anyway. Well, and in high powered business situations, um, alcohol is what often greases the wheels. That's how you close really big deals. It's, you know, it is flying out to business like it's so normalized and and you know i pointed out to some entrepreneurs that i coach they said is this is this like heavy drinking and i'm like well you had two drinks before dinner and you had a bottle of wine each yep that's more than five drinks that's that's heavy drinking yeah i've actually seen that where i work uh there was there was one instance and i didn't i've been sober for a long time there was one instance when i was really uncomfortable being around um, in a work situation with people drinking. And what it was, I was I was out of town, I was in the Chicago area, 
And I was at this like a cocktail party where people are mingling and doing the small talk, which is always difficult for me anyway. And they had a they had a bar and they give you little tickets for drinks. And of course, you know, I'm not I'm not going to drink anything, but maybe a Coke or whatever. And and this one guy who who knew I didn't drink was just pestering me for my ticket. So I gave him my tickets and, you know, and he was kind of making fun of me for not being a drinker and all that kind of stuff. I was just so uncomfortable. So I so I left. (laughs) I left that little thing and I went down into the lobby and I called my sponsor and we just chatted about something. But um, when I went back up there. I realized that I left my coat at a table and I ended up sitting down right next to like the CFO of the company. And I had the best time I've ever had because <laughs> she was so laid back and she was so nice and everybody in the table, they were sober and they were cool. They were great to talk to. And I just ended up having a really good time, but I had to, uh, I really needed to remove myself from that uncomfortable situation where we're mingling and doing a small talk and drinking and all that kind of crap. But that was the one time I was really uncomfortable, you know, and I just had to remove myself from the situation. But for the most part, um, in my position, I don't really have to be, a, I don't, not being an entrepreneur or anything and, and working for a company that really tries to save their money. We don't do a lot of, a lot of that anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But thank you for coming on. This was really interesting. I enjoyed the conversation. I think this turned out to be a great episode. Uh, it's, uh, it's super, and it'd be interesting to hear from you later on to see, um, you know, how, how this thing moves for you. If you're going to find, it'd be interesting to see if you actually, um, kind of, market yourself in that way do you think you would or you were you yeah, like that's my plan I'm, I'm i'm currently like building my platform um like i want to come up with a one-hour talk and figuring out what what i want to change on my website and i'm not quite there yet but i'm i'm and i've done a few videos which i have put out there and kind of got feedback from people um you know and broken my anonymity yeah uh, which is quite uncomfortable for me i um, started I doing that now i think it's the right thing to do it is you for know, me I, I really think it's the right thing to do to be able to help more people. I think so too. Uh, what's your website? Uh, coach DJ So it's my first, my initials, David James. Okay. Well, we'll put that up in the show notes when we post this um, again. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. And with that, I will say that's another episode of beyond belief sobriety. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to help out our podcast, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. Uh, You can do it money-wise by uh, uh, going over to our website, beyondbeliefsobriety.com, and clicking on the donate button or the little yellow coffee cup at the bottom to buy a cup of coffee. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety, or you can uh, become a member of our YouTube channel. We've got a lot of stuff posted on YouTube that we don't post on the podcast. So uh, going over there, you might find some find something over there that's interesting. And then later on, uh, down the road, there might be other ways to help, just, as, just volunteering uh, to help out with the podcast. We'll see what will come of that uh, in the future. David, thanks again. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to hearing how your uh, business develops uh, going forward. Super. Thanks so much, John. Thank you.